This is the Illuminate Podcast, a Sandy Boy production. Each week on the Illuminate Podcast, the hosts will bring you insightful conversations and stories of people who are illuminating their own lives through their business, work, community, family, and world. Hey everybody, welcome to the Illuminate Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Lindsay Hine, and today you're listening to episode 18. Today's episode is with Christy Turlington Burns. I originally recorded this episode in November and it went out on my podcast, I'll Have Another with Lindsay Hine, which is also part of the Sandy Boy Productions Network that this podcast is part of. We felt like this conversation really served both audiences, and I thought it was an important conversation to get out on the Illuminate podcast feed. So today we are airing this episode over here. Christy Turlington Burns is the founder of the nonprofit Every Mother Counts. Every Mother Counts envisions a world where all women have the opportunity to enter motherhood and not only survive, but thrive. She began Every Mother Counts after having her own childbirth-related complications. Christy directed and produced the documentary feature film, No Woman, No Cry, to highlight the challenges women face throughout their pregnancy and childbirth around the world. Under Christy's leadership, Every Mother Counts has invested nearly $15 million in programs in Africa, Latin America, South Asia, and the United States, focused on pregnancy and childbirth safe for every mother everywhere. So before founding Every Mother Counts, you might recognize Christy's name because she received international acclaim as a model representing the world's biggest fashion and beauty brands. She's been featured on thousands of magazine covers, was one of Time's 100 Most Influential People, and Glamour Magazine's 2013 Woman of the Year. Every Mother Counts was also recognized as one of the Fast Company Magazine's top 10 most innovative non-for-profit companies. I love that Christy had this really personal issue in her own life and used her platform, her knowledge to do something really impactful and really important with it. And I'm just so excited to share this conversation with Christy. It was an honor to sit in the Every Mother Counts offices and get to do this face-to-face. So I really hope you all enjoy my conversation with Christy Turlington Burns. All right, sitting in the Every Mother Counts office with Christy Turlington Burns. Welcome to the podcast, Christy. Thank you so much. I am so honored to be sitting here. Um, One of my friends, Jenny Jerk, connected us, and she was actually a guest on my show, and towards the end of the interview, she said, you know, you should really interview Christy for your podcast, and I said, oh, I would love to interview Christy. I'm so glad it happened, and I'm so glad that you're here for the marathon this weekend. Yeah, okay, so how many New York City marathons have you ran? I've run New York City um, twice. Okay. And I was going to run this year because it's the 50, I turned 50 this year and it's supposed to be the 50th anniversary. Um, but they decided to celebrate it next year because they canceled seven years ago because of Hurricane Sandy, right. which I also trained for and wasn't able to run. So I've been injured. Actually, I have a, I've had a stress fracture and a fractured metatarsal on the, my left foot. So I deferred my spots and I'll try it again next year on the, 
50th and I'll pretend like I'm 50 again next yeah, year. Yeah, <laughs> you can just celebrate 50 twice. Exactly. How long have you been injured? Um, I guess I did a half marathon in Tanzania in February and I thought I had chin splints and I kept running because I was training for Big Sur mm-hmm. and then I went and got an MRI and discovered that it was a stress fracture. So I was in a boot till June. Um, got out of it and was just started to get back. And then I did another short race, the Falmouth, um, race, road race up in Cape Cod in August and then hurt myself again. Oh man. So I'm just taking it easy. I've been doing Pilates, (laughs) yoga, and I'm going to just reboot in January and start fresh. Yeah. Okay. So Christy Turlington Burns, for those listening, they might know you as the super bottle Christy Turlington Burns. I, told my sister-in-law that I was interviewing you and that's how she knows you. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of us in the running world though know you because of an organization you started, Every Mother Counts. Um, A lot of my friends have fundraised for Every Mother Counts and I know it's near and dear to so many people's hearts. I'm a mom of four myself so I just love your mission so much. Thank you. Yeah, I mean I my first career is obviously as a model and um, I feel like if you were born – before 1987, you definitely know who I am. <laughs> um, but if not, I never just imagined that that people would have a connection to that part of my um, my life. But I started Every Mother Counts in 2010. Um, and I started the organization because um, many years ago, my daughter just turned 16. So it's been 16 years since I became a maternal health advocate. Um, I had a postpartum complication after her birth. And that's what opened my eyes to um, a global tragedy which is maternal mortality and um and yeah we lose women every day to pregnancy and childbirth related complications and so after my experience I just felt so connected to so many other women that I will never know or never meet um but I I felt that my story and my um, platform I could offer a lot and I could be helpful in raising awareness about something that I think we have a lot of potential to be able to change but people don't know enough or aren't connected to what the solutions are and so that's kind of what every mother count started as and is all about how do you transition because I know one thing I really admire about you is you went back to school. Mm-hmm. Um, I went back to school actually. Well, I started modeling when I was a teenager. I was 14 or 15 years old. Um, I came to New York City when I was 16. And then um, I finished high school, but I would go back and forth. And I changed to a professional children's school so that I could leave often to work. And then once I was here um, on my own and living in an apartment and like living my best life, I... Um, New York City here? Yeah, I was so excited. I'm from Northern California. I'm from the East Bay area. Actually, Jenny and I were born in the same hospital oh, yeah. in Walnut Creek, really? California. Yes, we found that out once we traveled oh together gosh. to Tanzania. Um, but once I was here and I was no longer a student who was a model part-time, I suddenly started to think about, oh, wait a minute, maybe that's not so cool. Mm-hmm. Maybe I really want to go get my education. But it took me some time to make the time. I was working a lot and um, sort of at the peak of my career in my early 20s when I made the commitment to go back. And I went to school actually at 25 to NYU. And I went, I, I was really important that I go in four years and that I like do it at the right pace. And um, I was able to work a little bit, but the people that I worked for were long-term contractual kind of relationships. And they really supported my choice to go back to school and worked around my schedule, which was fantastic. And, um, and then I graduated when I was almost 30. And I was just at that point, like hungry to start. Like that's when I felt like my life was really starting because my first career I fell into and 
was fun and great and I enjoyed a lot of success, but it wasn't something that I set out to achieve. So it didn't feel like mine so much. Um, so after I got out of school is when I started thinking about like, who do I want to be and what do I want to do? And, um, I started a couple of businesses. Um, I was a big, I am a big yoga enthusiast and practitioner. And so I started a, a clothing line in partnership with Puma and, um, about yoga for yoga and the lifestyle of yoga. And then I started a natural skincare company at that oh, time. Is that still, um, a, a it thing? still exists, but I sold it. Okay. Um, and then the Puma thing, we ended up winding down after I had my second child and I just, um, I don't know. I had a change of focus after I became a mom and I really wanted to do something even more meaningful than, you know, create products, you know, when you say you fell into the modeling, what did that look like as a kid? Yeah. So I, um, my sister and I, my older sister and I were, um, equestrians. I mean, we were, we would horseback ride after school every day and, um, a photographer saw us Mm -hmm. riding and then asked my mom, could he photograph us? And my sister, who's two years older, was really keen. (laughs) She was like, (laughs) that sounds fantastic. Um, and then I was kind of dorky and like, gangly and a mouthful of braces and um, I was like okay sure um and then because I was gangly and dorky with a mouthful of braces um and taller than my sister um I was the one that once the photographs were shared with an agent um we lived in Miami at the time when she showed them to an agent uh they said oh you have a you could work and then my sister was like what oh no um and so I started modeling, but mostly at first after school and like junior, you know, okay. fashion, nothing very yeah. glamorous. But then pretty soon after, by the time I was 15, 16, um, I was working for magazines and spending a lot of time in New York and Europe and going, doing the fashion shows and all of those things. And, um, so yeah, I, I did fall into it. I wasn't thinking about it. I wasn't even looking at fashion magazines at that point in time. I don't think I had any style whatsoever. Um, so I kind of just learned on the job and, had a great like chance to see the world, which was always my my the main driver of my interest in the whole industry. Um, I'm still living in New York after all these years. Yeah. I moved here full time in 1987 after I graduated from high school, and married a New Yorker and had two kids here, and so this is home. What does your sister do now? She lives here now too. Okay. Um, I have two sisters. Um, I'm the middle of three girls, and um, my older sister ended up marrying my husband's brother. No. Um, it's so, it's a funny story. Uh, but they, my sister was part of, um, the reason why I met my husband. Okay. She had a friend who was a friend of a friend of his and they were trying to introduce us for a, a while actually. And, um, when we finally started dating, we spent a lot of time with her. She was separated from her first husband at the time. And my husband is super close to his younger brother. And so we were together in groups and doing, you know, ski trips and, um, whitewater rafting trips and all of these fun things together. And they were always very flirtatious, but we never imagined that anything would happen. And once we got married, uh, they decided to start dating. Oh my gosh. And then a couple of years later, they got married and they have two kids also. So, um, they moved to New York a couple of years ago. Well, actually, it's been a, a while now, six years ago, maybe, and, um, are raising their two sons. And then one of her older children, actually, both of her older children live here now too. And they live around the corner from us. So oh we gosh. see each other. It's like the best situation. We see so each other cool. all the time. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's dive into every mother counts a little bit more. Sure. Can you talk about the evolution of it? And 
I know that you had a story with your daughter mm-hmm. and you had some post-birth complications. Mm-hmm. So can you kind of share that story? Sure. Um, yeah. So when I became pregnant with my daughter, Grace, um, I was super excited to be pregnant. I was at a time in my life where I already had one career and I was um, sort of in the midst of being a business owner and um, I'd gotten my education and I was just like, I met the person that I was going to be with. And so I came into pregnancy um, feeling like so ready. And I also had great resources. I had some friends here who had gone through childbirth here and kind of helped me navigate what my options were. And I always wanted for myself natural childbirth. Um, and I think some people have that idea in mind, but then, you know, it's not really in our control at the end of the day. But I really had this vision of myself um, delivering with a midwife and delivering in a birthing center. And I was able to have that experience here. Um, and really, it was perfect, everything about it. I felt incredibly supported. Um, I was just like, I loved that I had the option that I had. And the delivery even itself was really straightforward and was what I wanted and what I expected. And then postpartum, um, I didn't just progress into the fourth stage of labor. So I had a retained placenta, it's called. And there's no there's no test or way that you could know that you have that until you deliver. Um, but essentially, the placenta is grown into the uterine wall and so it needs to be extracted um and because i had an unmedicated birth it had to be extracted without pain medication oh. so it was excruciating oh, gosh. i was like a baby nothing <sighs> having your placenta torn from your uterus very painful um and wow. because your uterus is vascular i bled a lot yes. so i hemorrhaged a couple of liters of blood not enough to have a transfusion um i also was able to stay in my birthing center room and all of the interventions and the management of the complication were done there, which was great. So my husband was there with our daughter in his arms and, um, you know, it was painful and it was scary, but I felt very looked after. Um, when I went home, you know, I kept asking myself like, how did this happen? And how I felt so prepared. Why did I not know this was a possibility? And I came across really staggering um, statistics. And at the time in 2003, um, the estimate globally for women and girls who die from pregnancy and childbirth related complications was more than half a million. Wow. And that those numbers really had not changed in decades. And just to discover that information just really shocked me to have gone through pregnancy, not knowing that that still happened in the 21st century. I just blew my mind. And um, once I learned, I couldn't sort of unlearn that information. I started talking more uh, with other women, with my friends, with my sisters about my experience and my complication. And then I started to learn that a lot of other women that I knew had different complications, either with their child in the pregnancy or themselves. And it just shows how little we talk about these very human experiences that so many of us go through, but we don't share them with each other, which I think could also better prepare us for these, um, these transitions in our lives. Um, so I, I didn't know exactly what I was going to do, but I felt, um, I felt very changed from the experience and I felt, cause birth can be so transformative and I felt that, um, I had a story to tell and that I wanted more people to know about, um, how transformative the birth experience could be and to be better prepared coming into it. Kind of that sort of playing it forward or paying it forward, but momming it forward a mm-hmm. little bit. Um, so I started just to get more and more educated. And, uh, a couple of years later, I was pregnant with my second child. And at that time I had an opportunity to travel internationally with a humanitarian organization called CARE. 
And because I was pregnant and because I had a small child at home, the country we decided to go to was um, El Salvador, which is my mom's birth country and a country that I have been to many times. And um, so we went there and my mom came along and we visited a lot of different programs around the country. And the last day I was there, we visited a clean water um, project and that project like it drew a lot of women to it because women, of course, do most of the work <laughs> in the world. So women were coming either pregnant or with babies on their backs um, to access clean water. And in so doing, they were getting very, very basic prenatal care or postpartum care um, because it was this opportunity to engage and to educate. And that's where I had this aha moment. You know, we were in this very rural community and I thought, oh my gosh, had I had the birth experience of my first and I lived mm-hmm. here, I would have died. Yeah. I I almost certainly would have died because we were so far away from the um, city hospital and we were on paved. Uh, we were not on paved roads and we were in places where there was not clean water and tin roofed houses and it was very rural. Um, so I came back from that trip, had my son a few months later without complications. And were you scared? No, actually, a lot of people ask me that, and I really wasn't. Um, I think the only scary thing the second time, and you will understand this as a mama four, is that when you've done it, it's almost like, it's like almost like to know something is scarier, right? You're yes. like, okay, I know there's only one way through this. Yep, yep. Um, and he was a bigger baby uh-huh. and he, I delivered him much quicker. Okay. So, um, so in that sense, it was, it was intense, but otherwise, you know, really straightforward. And I had the same team exactly. And nice. I was in the same place and, um, it all was good. And when I, he came, out and he was healthy and I was healthy, I just made a commitment that I'm going to do whatever I can. And so I went back to care and I said, how can I be helpful? Like, how can I help that community we visited in El Salvador? And they said, well, we'd love to have you help us, but we are just too big to be able to have just one person matched with one community. Mm. So we'll just help educate you and then you can sort of see where what you're interested in. And so I went, you know, once I weaned my second child, I flew to Peru to see some work that they did there and where they were able to reduce maternal mortality in half in this rural community up in the highlands. And that's where I, I was really, really excited by, like I saw this incredible program and in such a simple way, just by really treating women with dignity and respect, you know, letting them speak in the language, their, their Quechua language, um, letting them have a midwife by their side rather than to have them, you know, have this medicalized sort of Western side of birth, um, kind of approach, um, by letting them have their families in the room, like things that are so basic and that's yeah, what that I wanted. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I came back and I decided I wanted to go back to school again. Again. And I wanted to make a documentary film so that I could start to show some of these challenges um, and incredible solutions around the world so that people could make that connection, you know, all over the world, this like sisterhood um, sort of connection. And I went back to school to work on a master's in public health at Columbia University. So that was in 2008. Um, my kids were pretty small. They were three and five, two and five. Now, did you have Um, a nanny during this time? What does that look like? I did. I, um, early on, I had some help, but I didn't have like a full-time person because I, even with my businesses, I, they were small. And since I was the founder of those businesses, I could take them anywhere. Do your own schedule. And I did. I took, I could be flexible and I could take them anywhere Mm -hmm. and I could nurse in any meeting. Like I could do 
any of it, which was, I mean, I know that's a luxury. It shouldn't sure. be, but it is. Um, I remember I nursed for a long time and part of that was the convenience of being able to take long trips mm-hmm. and to travel with my kids. And it was great for me and it was great for them. And my husband also has a flexible, um, career. He's a filmmaker and a writer. And so, um, you know, when I went back to school, it was a decision for our family. And then I started traveling a lot because of the film that I was making, but he really believed, I mean, he was right there with us and we had the complication that happened to him too. And so he knew it was important and he was fully supportive of that. Um, but even then it was like, let's try what it's like to do a trip and then let's see how everybody does. And if everybody did well, I could plan the next trip, you know? So we really worked together to try to make it work. And again, he just fully supported it. And I'm so grateful that I have a partner that understood the importance of what I was trying to do. And then when the film came out in 2010, it seemed like, okay, this is just the beginning of what this is going to be. It's not the end. And so Every Mother Counts was sort of initiated as a campaign to kind of accompany the film. Um, there was starting to be some uh, like political will and real conversations around maternal health because of the UN Millennium Development Goals. And the film ended up becoming this very useful piece of like storytelling to go with these statistics that the world was starting to talk about in development circles and in political circles. And, um, it, that felt like so meaningful to me because that's why I made it. Um, and I traveled around the world with that film to the countries where we filmed in, we filmed in Tanzania, Bangladesh, Guatemala, and the United States. And, um, I kept film like, touring the world, going and having these conversations, getting people to be engaged and to, to ask like the same question that I asked myself, which was, oh my gosh, now that I know what, what can I do? And so Every Mother Counts was really initiated to be that for people, to for people to learn more and then to find ways to engage. And, you know, that's changed a little bit over the last almost 10 years since we started, but running became one of those ways. Yeah. Um, like, you know, I, we got um, 10 spots for the New York City Marathon in 2011. And running a marathon had been on a bucket list at some point. And then once I had kids, I was like, I don't know how I'll ever do that. <laughs> um, and then because it came to Every Mother Counts, uh-huh. it was like, oh, this is the perfect opportunity. So and that was so, your first marathon? Mm-hmm, okay. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a first half or any other race of any distance. It Just was go a, all in. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Now I'm trying to find other distances. <laughs> yeah. No, you know, I when you were describing like your birth situation, I think that we forget what a privilege it is that we get to just go to the hospital and do these things. Um, did I read somewhere or maybe I heard you say in an interview that 98% of maternal deaths are preventable? It's actually 90, but for a long time we thought it was 98. Okay, 90. So globally, 90%, okay. which is a lot. Wow. And then in the United States, 60%. 60%. Mm-hmm. We lose two women per day in the U.S. Why is that happening in the United States of America? Good question. Um, it's complicated. I mean, our, our country is enormous, and um, it's almost like 50 countries, really, when you talk about the way yeah. that they're run, the way that their systems are. Um, we also have, you know, we have this problem in that we have a rise in chronic health conditions, um, obesity, diabetes, lots of other hypertensive disorders. Um, you know, heart disease is like the leading killer of women in this country, but even like cardiac related deaths are the leading cause of maternal deaths too. Oh, like happening mm-hmm. while you're in childbirth? Well, you know, eclampsia yeah. or preeclampsia, oh, sure. which yeah. if, 
again, if you're getting care throughout your pregnancy and you are alerted to the fact that you may have that, you can treat it all along. But there are so many women that fall through the cracks that aren't insured. I mean, only one in five women of reproductive age is insured in this country. And you have to pay for those visits. And you have to pay for these visits. And so women are, there's a lot of women that aren't welcomed into the system because either they're disenfranchised or um, they just don't have the means. They don't have the support at home. They don't have a job that gives them leave. They don't have, they have other children and no child care. Like there's so many barriers for women to access care and women, as I'm sure you've also experienced, tend to like put themselves last, right? It's like my child first, my spouse second or first, depending, mm-hmm. and my kids, my family first, and then like whatever my needs are. And it's so interesting because oftentimes when you're pregnant is maybe the first time you have a really serious need to interface with your medical system or to be in a hospital. Like I would never been hospitalized in my life until I was pregnant. Um, and so, you know, you're already starting kind of behind the ball, right? You, you want to make sure that you're in your optimum health before you become pregnant, but we don't start talking about pregnancy until, I mean, like 50% of pregnancies are not planned. Um, that's even with people who have the resources and tools to plan. Um, we just don't, that's just the way that it works. And so to, to, to find yourself in this place without having, you know, a plan in place, right? A plan for how you're going to navigate your work. Cause most people in this country, like m- most people work. Most people in a family, both be, both adults are working people. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about like, who's getting leave? Will anybody have leave? How are we going to raise our kid? Do we need help? Can we afford help? Those are major questions that a lot of American women can't answer. The other piece that is a problem and is becoming more of um, a conversation right now is racism. Oh, see, that was my next question. Oh, good. Question. Yeah. I'm I mean, so glad you're bringing that up. It's so hard to talk about. Yeah. I think any, doesn't matter how progressive or evolved you I think was nervous you may to bring be, it up. right? So I'm glad but you it's, did. it's the thing that you can't not. It's sort of the elephant in the room. And, um, the data has talked about this for some time, but I'd say in the last couple of years, more and more attention because there have been more stories that have been amplified where, you know, Serena Williams, for example, um, she has, she had her own chronic health condition. So when she had her child and had a C-section, um, she could recognize in her body that she, something was happening and she knew what she needed and she asked for that. And she's like, you know, one of the strongest people Williams. we know. Exactly. Yeah. And she was not listened to immediately. Luckily, she had a voice and could demand what she needed and she knew what it was and they listened. But that story really helped us to elevate this issue, which is that women of color are three to four times more likely to die in a pregnancy or childbirth related complication. And that means even women of color who are highly educated are um, are of a higher socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter. Why? The 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 evidence is saying that it's implicit biases in our institutions. Um, and it is crazy. And so the real solution to that is, first of all, acknowledging it and saying, like, there's data, there are stories and testimonials yeah. that say this is true and this is real. 
Now it's on the health systems to say, well, we don't accept this and to incorporate implicit bias training into Mm -hmm. medical um, education and training uh, to have that training be ongoing, not just like, you know. We're going to do it once. Yeah, exactly. Check the box. Now we've done it. Um, And so that's starting to be a deeper conversation now that it's been said out loud and people are are looking at the data. Um, You know, state by state, when you look at the states that are ranked the most poorly in the country, um, they happen to be also places that have a large population of people that are of color, um, a lot more women that are um, low-income women. And so it just feels... Um, it's, it feels like you really, like we need to be having this conversation. We need to be looking at it. And if you improve the system for those women, everyone will benefit. Yes. Because any woman is at, I mean, I was a perfectly healthy person and I had a complication. You know, it can happen to anyone and yet most births go perfectly fine. So it has to be, it's a really about a system, like getting a system to a place where it's functioning and it's smooth and that people have access and options throughout their journey. Um, but if they're not, if they're not properly introduced to the healthcare system, then usually they get there too late. Mm-hmm. And that in this instance is, is a life or death scenario. Um, Allison Felix was recently in the news about that. Do you remember? Yes. She did like a big press conference about I it. I saw that. that. It's, I mean, I, I don't wish any of these things on anyone, no. but the visibility yes. and the voice and reaching so many uh-huh. more people. I mean, I was at a, a media, like a, an editorial board we did for a media company in the neighborhood recently, today. Um, and we did this recently at CNN and, you know, People were asking us, why do we not see it more in the media? And I was like, and somebody turned it around and said, yeah, why are we not seeing it more in the media? And it's a question we have to ask ourselves. I think sometimes when there's this sense that, oh, we've been giving, we've been having babies since the beginning of time. Mm -hmm. It's the most natural thing. Why are we not talking about it? And then when we do talk about it, it's the worst scenarios. It's them or the ones that are celebrity oriented. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, oh, now we care because Serena Williams. And that's the thing that we have to, as a culture, kind of get over and start just paying attention to every woman, every family. Yeah. I had a scheduled C-section with my first birth mm-hmm. and then I was able to V-back. The, Good for you. Yeah. That's not easy. I mean, it's not easy to find people who will do it yeah. either. I mean, it was like, I remember the second baby, um, it was like an uh, one of the resident doctors mm-hmm. and he, I was had to make the choice. You know, I went in because my water broke. I had to make the choice. Are you going to do a C-section or are you going to try to V-back? And I, I just looked him in the eyes and I was like, if I was your wife, what would you tell me to do? And he said, I, I'd have her do the V-back. Good for you. Yeah. And lucky you. Because what if he said something else? Right. Like that was just a very... That might have been, that might have tipped me over. Mm-hmm. If he looked me in the eye and said C-section, mm-hmm. I might have been like, okay, my gut instinct yeah. was to do what you told me And that me is to what do. we do. We, any of us, any people, they go into the into the healthcare system and you go, okay, this person is a doctor. This person is white, a white coat and they know more than I do. And the thing is, oftentimes, especially because you don't get to spend time with providers in the way that no. people used to. It's always know. the residents checking me. And, yeah. yeah. So if you don't have that history yeah. and they don't know you and yeah. you don't know them, really the best expert on you it's is true. you. It's true. You know? Yeah. And I, I've thought about Every Mother Counts and, you know, you going to these remote areas and like, what if that was my experience? Like, just like your experience, had you done, had your baby somewhere else? Because um, I had the scheduled C-section because my son was breech. Mm-hmm. And that's like very, that can be very dangerous. Mm-hmm. You know, so what if I wasn't in the United States with access to good health care, with health insurance? Yep. 
and that C-section would have been real expensive without my health insurance. Right. And that the expense of it is another big problem in our system. Um, but the other part is like in rural Tanzania, for example, you don't have doctors that can do a Mm C-section. So what happens is something called obstructed labor. um, And that's where, you know, a woman can't deliver the child that she's carrying. And there is no other option for a C-section. So usually that child does not make it. And Mm. then the mother, if she doesn't have it also removed surgically or in a medical setting, she might not survive either. And so, you know, there's this recommendation around C-section. Um, the World Health Organization suggests or recommends that the number should not be more than 15% of births to be C-section um, births okay. and then not under 5%. Um, in so many parts of the world, it's like way under 5%. Yeah. And then in the United States and in, let's say, Brazil, right where now. elective surgery is quite common, it's like 35 plus. Wow. Um, so that's really not safe. And there's been a lot more efforts in the last couple of years to try to like not like to try to say no because another big complication or cause of death is um placenta accreta mm-hmm. and that's that's something that happens because you build up scar tissue when mm-hmm. you usually have a first c-section you're going to have a subsequent one unless you have a, a an evolved doctor who says this yes try this that i just put um, my life in his hands i know but thank goodness because most people if they have like two and three and four pregnancies and they have to do it's subsequent that's a lot of c-sections yeah. and they're finding this accreta which is a, on the rise that that's directly connected to c-section yeah. so you know you have to you have to look at all of the odds and there's always a scenario of odds and doctor's job, surgeon's jobs are to like mitigate risk and to, you know, Mm -hmm. make those calls and to try to, you know, avoid. And yet now that the evidence is there, you want to try your best to avoid those elective procedures. I mean, again, it's a game of risk, but, um, and I'm sure it's a much harder thing to make those decisions and those calls. And also with our system and liability and all of that, you know, doctor's, you, you can't, you can't mess up, right? No. <laughs> you can't mess up, but human error is, is human. Yeah. Um, and so it happens. Um, but you want to try, and, and part of the whole thing is like just to do everything that they possibly can before, um, you know, everything they possibly can, which means a lot of intervention. Yeah. I know. I, um, every time I went in for my VBACs, I, I it's like you try to push it out of your head. Like, mm-hmm. you know what could happen. And you're like, surely, you know, it's 2019, like I won't die in childbirth, but it's always just a little bit there, even with the sophisticated system and everything we have access to. And you feel it. You feel feel how like um, fragile or how close you are. Like, you know, giving birth is is close to giving, to dying. You know what I mean? It's like this life force thing that's so... You know, I think that's why so many people have fear around it or why uh-huh. it's the kind of thing that people don't talk about enough is it just has that because it's such an important moment. Um, so to try to get people to feel as empowered as they can be going in, as healthy as they can be, and then to have the support of their provider and their, you know, family or whomever gives that support around them to be able to say, you know, you've got this, you can do it and to advocate for, for that choice and those wishes. What preventable maternal health problems is Every Mother Counts advocating for both in the U.S. and in the rural places? So we are really focused on improving access to quality, respectful, and um, equitable maternity care, which means 
Um, it means that women have those options and choices. So in some respects, it's talking about advocacy. There's some legislation that is working on bills that really identify what are the different areas and gaps in this, in the healthcare system. Um, they might be the fact that, um, women don't have care in the postpartum period, which is one of the like I think a third of maternal deaths happen during pregnancy, mm. a third happen in delivery, and a third happen postpartum. So where the where are the opportunities to improve on what the experience is like throughout that process? So on the one level, we really advocate for education and training of the providers um, so that you can recognize signs throughout that you're getting more of um, a sense of what is going on in mom's life, which means like doulas, community-based doulas, people that are in the communities where women may live and are so that you can really build up that trust and feel like you're coming in and informed and have like the power to, to self-advocate. And then the delivery care piece, like training, training hospital employees and staff about how to be respectful, how to listen to women. Um, and we do that in some ways through showing our films, um, showing our films to, uh, to residents, to docs in, um, grand rounds, having other kinds of providers like doulas and midwives and nurses and family doctors all in the same room together so that they're learning together and they recognize that they need to be a team when things happen. I mean, that's how I think my experience was so important because I got to see how they weren't siloed and they weren't in these like territorial, like adversarial positions. They really worked together to make sure that I had what I needed and that I was going to be okay. Oftentimes in a hospital setting, like when things go wrong, it's still not that common. So when things go wrong, people panic and they're not really trained to be dealing with these like emergency scenarios and some people will freeze and some people will know what to do. Um, oftentimes people will talk about how with aviation, my dad was a pilot. So this one works really clearly in my mind. Every time before he flew, he had this like huge book and he would review practices, things he did every day for 30 years, but every day. Always reviewed it. And doctors don't necessarily do that. Mm -hmm. They don't have the time built into the system, but they've just not, that's not the way that that practice has been trained. So you're not thinking about all of these scenarios that are kind of rare that unless you've seen one before, um, you would know kind of how to go forward. And so that's starting to happen a little bit more. There's more implementation across different hospitals and um, through the different professional organizations to have standardized like protocols in place yes. and checklists and um, drills. And there's even these um, safety bundles, which are there for postpartum hemorrhage or eclampsia, just to be on site so that people know how to use them, when to use them, and just can act more quickly when these happen. And then, you know, the advocacy to our policymakers about what kinds of laws can um, improve and change outcomes for everyone. So two things passed last year, which we were really excited about that we had helped support from the very beginning almost 10 years ago. Um, one of those was looking at just consistent data collection, um, maternal mortality reviews. I think 33 states out of 50 actually have maternal, maternal mortality review boards. And that is the process in which when something happens, lots of members of the hospital staff and the Department of Health, they come together and they really break down like, where was the system failure? How can we prevent this from happening again? But if we're not doing that consistently in every state and we're not collecting the data that we learn from that consistently, consistently, then we don't really know how bad it is. Like we know things are bad and they've been getting worse for the last two decades here, but it could be a lot worse than we know. And getting worse 
in the last two decades yes. is what you just said. steadily Here, since the late 80s. Mm-hmm. We're the only, did I already say this? I don't, I don't think know if I did. did. We're the only industrialized country with a rising maternal mortality rate. What? And I think part of what we were talking about before was the chronic health uh-huh. issues, right? Yeah, um, sure. You know, sometimes it's it's wealthier countries that mm-hmm. have issues of around obesity and diabetes. It's almost like these excessive kinds of, um, you know, fast food, our health. Like, there's a lot of things we're just not doing. We don't have very active people. I mean, we have a lot of very active people, but we have a lot of <laughs> we inactive hyperactive people. people. Right? We've been talking a lot about, yeah. like, obesity on the rise in yeah. this country for a long time. A long time, yeah. And then, um, yeah, the hypertensive stuff. It's not just in women of color, but you are seeing a lot of, um, you're seeing a lot of it there. And so that's, again, goes back to the implicit or the, the racism, this idea of being a woman of color in this country and having like those microaggressions all through your life. Um, and that, that, what does that do to our system? What does that do to your heart? What does that do to your organs? Um, so again, there's scientific data that's supporting this, but again, more, um, more data collection and more consistent reporting would help us to really understand what that is and then to figure out solutions accordingly. Yeah. Uh, where do you see this going in five years, 10 years? How big is Every Mother Counts? I mean, we're small in some ways. I mean, we are 11 people. Okay. So we're a small group, but we really partner a lot with other organizations. So we think of that as an extension of what we do. Um, we have lots of strategic partners that are large and small Um uh, we have about 50 running ambassadors across the country, some even outside of the country that are people who have run for us, but either are advocates or um, have some health education, like childbirth education experience, or they're nurses or they're doctors or they're midwives and they care a lot, or they're just moms and they, this touches them and they are super amped up to do more and help spread the word. So that's 50. So that's another extension of us. Um, so that's a big piece. It then. is. It is. And I think, I mean, part of us not growing that faster is just not having the capacity here to make sure. Because, you know, once you get people engaged, you really want to, we, we really value this sort of high touch approach. Mm-hmm. Like we want people to feel like they're per- active participants and they're partners and they're contributing and they're getting back something. Um, and you know, like it's just important for us to have that kind of partnership. And so in order to be able to provide that, we need to make sure that we can staff it here too. Um, and we're getting better at it. We, we are, we're learning and growing, but next year's our 10 year anniversary. And we're doing a lot of just like looking back at all the lessons learned. I mean, we've given about $15 million in grants, um, since 2012 when we became a foundation. Um, well, we have, we've had so many grantee partners, but currently we have six countries where we have grantee partners. Um, we have two in the United States, one in Florida and one in New Mexico. Um, both of them are midwives, um, who provide, uh, care to, uh, women of color primarily, um, but low income women, mm-hmm. women, um, who are disenfranchised to some extent. And, um, and then Guatemala, where we're training midwives and, um, uh, they're called Comadronas in Guatemala. Um, so we're going next week actually for a graduation of the second class of university accredited midwives, um, in Guatemala. So there are women who have been trained in a clinical setting, but they're also come from traditional, um, uh, indigenous backgrounds and they've been trained for three years and then they'll go back out to those really remote areas to provide care for women in their communities, and which be is like the primary amazing. care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And them. there'll be the linkages to higher levels of care if an emergency should happen. Oh, cool. Um, and then we're 
we're doing some human rights based um, work in India um, with a, uh, a migrant tea population of workers that are all women. Um, India has incredible laws in their constitution, but not every person knows what they're entitled to. So part of the work we've been funding in Assam, India has been just educating this population that they do have the right to health care, that they do have the right to this access to clinics and, um, and making sure that they're empowered to ask the right questions. So just like human rights training about what they are eligible for and what they need. And then in Bangladesh, we've been supporting a partner um, in this area called Cox's Bazaar, which if you've followed at all the Rohingya population, um, the refugee crisis that's mm-hmm. come in from Myanmar or Myanmar um, into Bangladesh, they've built an extension hospital just to be able to serve that million person population that just came flooding in over the last couple of years. And what happens when people are, um, are um, left you know, are wandering from their own country or displaced. Oftentimes women are pregnant during that time or have, or have small children that they're carrying from one place to the next. And, um, you know, that's just a, it's a terrible time to, you know, imagine like you have four kids, imagine having to like oh, migrate from one country to I the another, yeah. let alone, you know, a community to the next. And How so do you identify those communities. I, you know, from the very beginning of working on the first film, No Woman, No Cry, we're, and also just my education at Columbia, just really getting to know a lot of the players in the space, um, the maternal and child health community globally is a pretty um, strong one. People are have been working at this for decades, and so gotten to know all of those major players through the process of going back to school and um, working on the film, and then becoming an advocate and people being so excited to have somebody who's talking about it that I just gotten to meet so many people. Yeah. Um, and so when we were first starting to, you know, give grants, we just reached out to people that we'd met and we like, you know, cause you could almost close your eyes and point anywhere on a map and start. But we started with places where we got invitations. People had said, you know, can you come and can you see? And then we'd learn about the program and we'd find like, is this, is this something that feels like the right the right fit for us. Um, we've found over time that the smaller grassroots organizations feel the best because they don't have the same layers. They can report back. It's so clear to know when we can make an impact because you really see it. You see it immediately. Um, so they're usually small, um, but they also demonstrate what could happen and what could be scaled if they had more resources behind them. And so part of our, our goal is to really show like what is possible. Um, and, and that's really where our grant making. And then we have an emergency fund grant too, which has been able to help out like Hurricane Harvey in mm-hmm. Texas a few mm-hmm. years ago, Puerto Rico, um, the Virgin Islands, um, the migrant uh, situation, the crisis at the border. We gave an emergency fund grant a couple of months ago there, um, just to be able to help provide, like provide showers for lactating women and moms who've been carrying their kids and haven't bathed, you know, like simple, simple, simple things. Um, so we try to like go to the communities where there's a lot of need and then assess through our community partners who are very tapped into what's happening and what the needs are of the people they're trying to serve and then try to provide those, um, solutions when we can. Can you talk a little bit about how running plays into Every Mother Counts and how there's a connection there? Sure. So after that first year that I ran in 2011, um, I, when I started training every, like every time I went past like five miles, cause I'd run a little bit for exercise. When I'd go past five miles, the first time I was like, oh my gosh, 
I can do this. And then on my training runs, I just started thinking about it a lot. Like I'm doing this for this reason. And I started finding all these parallels, um, not only because in so many parts of the world, including parts of the United States, distance is a big barrier for women to access care. And sometimes miles alone are not the barrier in distance because distance could be, it could be a mile, but if it's a mile up a, you know, a muddy, crazy path, that's really difficult. Or, um, you know, for some people just to get across the side of town is really hard. Um, so anyway, that just became really clear that distance was a, was a major factor of why we were running and why we were raising awareness. And then also once you, once I went through it and I got through the finish line, it's very much like pregnancy, right? Like, you know, you're in this long journey that you commit to. And even through that, you go through these highs and lows, right? Where it feels amazing. And you're like, I could go on forever. And then you have these moments like in labor where you're like, I don't know if I could do this for five more minutes. And then you get to the end and you like push through and it's incredible. Um, and you're euphoric and you have all of this adrenaline. And so I feel like there were so many parallels. And before I had my first, before I ran my first race or before I had my first child, my doula asked me, have you ever run a marathon? She, she was trying to assess my tolerance for pain. And I hadn't. But when I ran a marathon, I was like, <laughs> I know what she's talking about. And now I've run eight marathons eight. and I run like 15 or 16 half marathons. And I get it. And I now like just see the value in continuing that. It's such a great way for people to join us and be a part of what we're trying to build. Okay. We'll wrap up with one question. What's your one message you want to send to the world? Christy Turlington Burns. I don't know, just to care. I think people do care. They want to care and they, it's, it's hard. Um, so to find something, I mean, I hope listening to this, you'll care about this and the maternal health will be something that you're passionate about. But honestly, it's just a matter of what, what pulls at your heartstrings, what, what, what makes you most concerned or keeps you up at night and go out there and be a part of, um, figuring it out because all of these problems can be solved if we all work together and, and make it a commitment and a priority. All right. Thanks so much, everybody, for tuning in. Thanks, Christy, for sharing your story and sharing the story of Every Mother Counts. You all can follow along Every Mother Counts on Instagram. They are Every Mom Counts. And head over to their website and check out all the great things they're doing over at everymothercounts.org. You can learn more about the Illuminate podcast. If you check out our website, theilluminatepodcast.com, that's where the show notes are. And you can find us on social media. We are the Illuminate Podcast on Instagram. And you can find us on Facebook as well, the Illuminate Podcast. If you have enjoyed this show, head over to iTunes or wherever you're listening, whatever podcast app you're listening on, and leave us a rating and review. That is one of the best ways potential new listeners can find us. And And if you loved a particular episode, we would appreciate it so much if you would share that on social media with your friends over there. Make sure to check out the other podcasts in the Sandy Boy Network. I'll have another with Lindsay Hine and the Up and Running Podcast. All right. I hope you've all had a Merry Christmas and a Happy Holiday. And we'll see you next week on the Illuminate Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us.